I invite you to take your Bibles and open it to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Can you believe already chapter 14 of the 16 chapters of Mark? And um, this little gospel has been such an amazing study to see Christ and to see His glory and His beauty. And I think this text, above all, as the title of the sermon shows, will show us the infinite worth of Christ. The infinite worth of Christ. So even as we just read this, see His value and His worth in this text. So hear now the words of the living God. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's just pray together. Father, I want to ask you for your help. Lord, I pray that you will give us right now your Holy Spirit, that we might see and understand the value, the worth, the beauty, and the glory of Christ, and that he is the only one that can satisfy our hearts. He is the only one that can bring us true joy, true peace, lasting happiness. And that we would see through the lies of the, of the devil and the lies of sin, which so easily promises us joy, but produces death and misery and sadness. Father, help us to be willing to give up everything to follow Christ, realizing that what we get in return is far above what we ever could have given up. Lord, please help me in this sermon. Please be with me. I pray that you will use your word to transform our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Like I said, we are in a, the final chapters of the Gospel of Mark, but I would be in no other book because I think what we really need in a time like this is a front row seat of who Jesus is. We need to look at the Gospels and see who he is, what he has done, and how he loves us. That's what we need in a time like 2020. And what our text will show is that he is the best person to be putting your eyes of faith upon because there is no one more valuable. There's no one more worthy. There's no one more trustworthy. There's no one more faithful than Christ. So if you put your eyes, and your, your, your eyes of faith upon him, it is, it, is, it is on the best place possible in the universe. That's the main point of this, this text that we've just read. And if you've noticed, this is another 
Moroccan sandwich, all right? So we, we, it was a time, a long time since we did that. So maybe for those who haven't been following us from the start, what a Moroccan sandwich is, what Mark does in his gospel is a literary style where he begins a story, he interrupts his own story with a, a middle part of the story, which you could say the patty of, the, of, the, of the, the bun, and then he returns back to the first story and he completes the thought of the first story. So he builds like a sandwich. That's why it's called a Moroccan sandwich. And he, he does that. And whenever you see that in the Gospel of Mark, you should know that Mark is trying to communicate that the middle part is the, is the point. So the two stories are connected, but the main emphasis, the main point he wants you to see is the middle part. And in here, it's really easy. It isn't hard to see what Mark is trying to communicate. He's contrasting two groups of people or two types of people. He's contrasting the Pharisees, the, relig the religious leaders, and then Judas. Um, one of the twelve discussing how they will kill Jesus, what they will do to kill him. And then in the middle, we have the beautiful story of an unnamed woman giving everything to Jesus. Because he is the Messiah, the anointed one. The Holy One of God. So here's the point. Here's the point in one sentence. You and I can never give, do, or sacrifice too much for Christ. Because he is of infinite worth. You and I can never give, do, or sacrifice too much for Christ because He is of infinite worth. Another way to say it is, you always receive much, much more from Christ than what you are giving to Christ. That is the truth. And I'm not speaking here about cars and you know houses and I'm speaking here about the joy of fellowship with God, the joy of being reconciled to God, the joy of having the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, leading us to peace and joy in God, and the joy of having that hope of what Mornay has said and what we have read in 1 Peter of our inheritance, that, that we will have a new heaven and a new earth with a glorified body where we will never die, never be sick, never cry, never feel any pain with God forever and ever with ever-increasing joy. That is what Christ gives us by grace. Isn't that like that last words are just above me. Like you get all of this, not by what we've done, but by what he's done. That is what I mean by whatever you give up on this tiny earth, on this tiny life of yours, whatever you sacrifice in your, your walk with Christ, it, is, it cannot compare with what Christ gives us. But... If you do not see Jesus as all valuable, all satisfying, all sufficient, then you will betray him for anything, even 30 pieces of silver. Then you will trade him for the sins of this world, for the pleasures of this world. That's why, by the way, every time you sin, that's what actually happens. You value your sin above Christ. And by the way, that's why it's so painful for Christians, because every time you sin, you, you have traded, you've made a bad trade. You've said, this sin is more satisfying to me than Christ. And we know it's not true. We know it, and yet we do it. And, you're, and if you have ever been a Christian for longer than a week, you will know that we do this quite often. But thankfully, there's grace that, that saves us, rescues us, and restores us back to him. So, beloved, we'll, this, this afternoon, only look at two points, and we're going to break up the two points in that sandwich. So, the first point is we're going to first consider the ugly intentions, the ugly intentions against God's anointed. 
Um, that's the first half, the, the buns of the, of the sandwich. And then secondly, we'll consider the beautiful devotion. The ugly intentions and then the beautiful devotion to God's anointed. So let's first consider the, this ugly intention against God's anointed in the opening verse. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So Mark says that this plot took place two days before the Passover. Remember, the Jews counted days a bit differently than the way we count days. Um, they would count the, the day of when it happens as the first day, and then the day, so tomorrow would be the second day. So today would be the first day, and tomorrow would be the second day. So remember, the crucifixion took place on the Friday. The day before was the Passover, the Thursday, and on the Wednesday, this is when this plot happened. Two days before the Thursday, which means the Wednesday in a Jewish mindset. This plot was happening how to kill Jesus. And what Mark shows us is the strong connection between the Passover and Jesus' death. The Passover, remember what the Passover was. It was the annual feast of the Jews, remembering how God delivered them out of their slavery from Egypt and how God spared them or passed them over when they killed a, a one-year-old perfect lamb and took the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost of their doors and they had to eat the lamb that same night because they had to eat it with their sandals on their feet and their staffs in hand because the next day they would be leaving. And the Passover meal started the seven-day feast of the unleavened bread. So the, the Passover lamb was the initiation into the seven-day feast of unleavened bread where they remember how they left Egypt in haste and the importance of purity, which unleavened, the unleavened um, bread symbolized. But notice, instead of talking about killing a lamb, what are the Pharisees talking about? Killing Jesus. They're talking about killing him. And in fact, he was killed on the very day that the Passover lamb was killed. So the connection is very strong. It's clear Jesus is the real Passover lamb. Everyone who's in him, God will pass over us on judgment day and we will not be cast into everlasting hell. We are safe. We are, we are the, the, the lamb who is my righteousness is the only safety against the holy judge. Because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that is what Jesus is. So, but notice their ugly intentions. They knew that they couldn't do this in public or during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Remember during the, the Passover and feasts like this, the population of Jerusalem would grow tremendously. It would, it, there's a high influx of people coming into Jerusalem. So, so the crowds are, are big. And when the Jews celebrated how God saved them from slavery in Egypt, many of them were thinking about how God is going to save them from Rome. So they, there was a parallel. And they were expecting Jesus to be this Messiah on the Passover to, celebrate, to, to set them free from their slavery or their submission to Rome. So, so normally uh, at that time when, they were, when there was a Passover, when the, the, the expectations was high for this deliverance, there was it, riots and uproars wasn't an uncommon thing in that time. It happened a lot. And to make matters worse for the Pharisees, people actually liked Jesus. They liked him. The religious, the religious leaders knew that if they ever stand a chance to kill him, they must do it in secret. They must arrest him by stealth, convict him by stealth at night, which we'll see is exactly what happened, and then just crucify him publicly. 
That's why verse 1 reads, they wanted to arrest him by stealth. By stealth. But this posed a problem for them because if they want to do this by stealth, they had to do this by night. You might say, what's the problem with that? Well, remember, they didn't have GPS systems or trackers they can put under Jesus' sandal to try to catch him whenever he leaves. So they had to know where he would be at dark. And second problem, they had to have someone to identify Jesus because at dark, there wasn't spotlights or anything like that. It was hard sometimes to identify people in the dark. So almost as an answered prayer, here comes Judas Iscariot. And he comes and offers himself, one of his own disciples, to do the very thing that they can't do. Look at verses 10 to 11. Verses 10 to 11, the, the second half of the, the sandwich. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So Judas, no doubt, was deeply disappointed with Jesus. He wasn't the man that he thought he would be. So why not make a few bucks on the way? Why not, why not make a profit while I dispense of him? Now Matthew tells us he actually took 30 pieces of silver, which was the price for a slave at that time. It shows how greedy he was, which we also see in the middle of the story. And, and that, is the, that is the ugly intention we see from the Pharisees and then one of his own twelve. And Beloved, I believe there are two lessons for us to learn from this, the sandwich, the, 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 the bread parts of the sandwich. The first is, notice that just to be close to Jesus is no guarantee that you actually love him. Notice that to be close to Jesus is no guarantee that you actually love him. Judas was one of the twelve. He saw all of his miracles he heard all of his teachings. He saw Jesus in action all the time. And yet there was no love for him. There was no true love for him. Yet there was no saving faith in him. Yet his heart was far away from him. So beloved, if that was true of Judas, how much more could that be true of us? How much more could that be true of you? You could never realistically, humanly speaking, be as close to Jesus as the disciples were. And we live 2,000 years after Christ with a million other substitutes that we can trade him in for, pleasures, money, and comfort. Unfortunately, I fear the worst for most so-called Christians. Many today think, well, I'm okay because I own a Bible. I don't read it, but... It's in my house, almost like a, a good luck charm or a, a hell insurance that we can just pick out. It's a Lord, but I had a Bible. Others rely on their past. They look back and they say for their security before God, I say, well, I was a deacon once. I, once upon a time, I served God. Well, if you only saw me in my youth, if you, if you only knew how I was back then. Lord, I prayed the prayer when I was five years old. Surely that will count for something. Surely God must be pleased by that in some way. Surely God, you'll remember me for my good. So the key question is, what about now? What about now? How have you forsaken your first love? Jesus says, repent and remember the works you did at first. Or it might mean that you never really knew him at all, but only some excitement for him. And beloved, we shouldn't be surprised by this because the parable of the sower at least hints in this direction that it's possible to even be 
excited about the Bible, excited about truth. And when suffering comes, or when the pleasures of money or comes, we fall away, which shows that there was never fruit. There was never the fruit of salvation. So, beloved, be watchful over your soul. Watch over your soul. It is by far your most valuable possession that you have. Remember what Jesus said. He says, what does it profit a man if you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? He means you will, you will gain nothing. If you put your soul, just one of just your one soul on, the, on one side of the scale, and you put all the riches, all the pleasures, all the glories of the world on the other side of the scale, it cannot compare how valuable your soul is compared to all of this, all that the world can give you. So be watchful over your soul. Are you like Judas? Serving Christ by lip service, but betraying Him every day by your life? Do, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. The important thing here is to remember that it is not so important about what you did in the past as what you are doing right now and what you will do tomorrow. The, the key is to say not did you repent once upon a time or did you trust in Christ when you were in the past, but are you trusting Him now? Are you repenting now? The life of the Christian is a life of ongoing faith, ongoing repentance, which is a privilege beyond words to be able to repent so today, if you hear God's voice, repent. And just like the sun will melt ice, so God in His grace can melt your hard heart and give you new desires and transform you when you realize that the only reason you will ever love Him is because He first loved you by dying for you. So that's the first lesson. We should be aware of thinking that just to be close, just to hear, just to, like, like James says, just to be hearers of the word and deceiving ourselves, it's not enough. True repentance and true faith of the heart is what is required. But the second lesson I think we can learn is also an encouragement. I just want to highlight this encouragement for us from this ugly intentions of the Pharisees and Judas. And that is that God planned their rebellion and he overturned it for good. He overturned their plans with his plans. Their plan was to try and kill him when the feast of the Passover was over. Yet God turned us out of their plan and all came together on the exact day of the Passover so that everything worked out. J.C. Ryle, I loved his commentary on this verse. He summed it up like this. He says, they thought they were going to put an end forever to Christ's spiritual kingdom. And in reality, they were helping to establish it. They thought... They thought have, they have made him vile and contemptible by the crucifixion, and in reality they've made him glorious. They thought to have put him to death secretly without observation, and instead they were compelled to crucify him publicly and before the whole nation of the Jews. They thought to have silenced his disciples and stopped their teaching, and instead they supplied them with a text and a subject forevermore. Isn't that amazing? Their whole plan to kill Jesus was part of God's plan. To save the world. Beloved, you and I need this. You and I need this reminder for our lives. We live in times when the politics, maybe America's politics or our own politics, 
and the tensions in our country are so big and so high, it's easy for us to be anxious and troubled and worried about the events of the world and forget and live like functional atheists. But remember who your father is. In the Lord's Prayer, it says, Our Father who is in heaven. God, our Father, is in heaven. And Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. God works all things together for good for His children. Nothing is outside of His control, His plan, and His counsel, and His will. So here, although the ugly intention was against God to get rid of Him, His influence once and for all, they were busy building His kingdom. They were busy establishing His kingdom. Now, don't you think it must be frustrating to fight against an enemy where your plans is part of his plans? Your plans against your enemy is part of your enemy's plans. You, you can't win against such a person. You can't defeat such a person. But that is exactly what God does. That is who God is. Everything in the world planned for evil is overturned by God for God's glory and God's eternal, wise, and loving plan. That's what Psalm 33 says, verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. So, beloved, don't fear. Don't fear events which are outside of your control because they are under the control of your Father who is in heaven. So rest in that. So, lover, that is the ugly intentions of, of the Pharisees and disciples, and it's a warning and both an encouragement for us. But let's secondly consider the beautiful devotion, the beautiful devotion to God's anointed. And in fact, this devotion is a kind of anointing, you could say, a, a crowning of Jesus. I call it beautiful because that's what Jesus called it. I call it a beautiful devotion because that was the words Jesus used. So we'll see that later, but let's read verse 3. Verse 3 says, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So the, the, the text doesn't mention it, but Simon the leper had to be a former leper. Because lepers would hardly have a meal where, where a lot of guests are in his house and so Simon was just one of many that Jesus came and healed and restored. And it was during that meal that an unnamed woman comes in. And John tells us, the Gospel of John tells us, this was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who did this. But Mark doesn't want to focus on the person. Mark wants us to focus on the action. He wants us to focus on what she did. And what she is doing is simply astounding. She takes this alabaster flask and breaks it. Now think about that. To break something means you can never use it again. It, is, it shows the totality of her giving. It shows the finality of her giving. She breaks it never to use it again because it's, it belongs to him. And that nard, of, which is pure, pure nard, is imported from a, a, a plant in India. So this makes this thing so rare, so expensive, and this is what she gives. And what makes this so amazing is what the text says, how much it is worth. And the, the, the irony is her greatest critics are not those on the outside. Her greatest critics of her devotion was the people on the inside, her, the disciples themselves. Look at verses 4 to 5. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment what? Wasted. Wasted 
like that. Note that word. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Again, you would expect the critics to come from the outside. Those who do not know Jesus, those who do not know who he is. But instead we see that it's those who are the closest to Jesus that offer this criticism. And what they couldn't understand was, why such a, why such a valuable perfume would be given just like that to Jesus? It, couldn't have, it could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. Remember, a denarius was the, the wage of a day's work. So this is 300 days work worth of money. So you could say this is a whole year, a whole year or more salary given cleanly. Notice, imagine you're getting a salary for 12 months and you don't take one rand from it. You give it cleanly to Jesus. You start to feel why these people would be so upset. Like, what are you doing? John's gospel shows us that Judas was the instigator. So Judas Iscariot was the one who started this criticism. Listen to John 12, verse 4 to 6. It says, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And I love John's comment here. He says, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Which makes sense why I would try to make a few bucks to betray Jesus as well. But Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel shows us that he wasn't the only one criticizing. Mark's gospel puts it in the plural to say the disciples joined in with this instigating of Judas. So all of the disciples were guilty. All of the disciples were indignant at this extravagant sacrifice. How can you take something so valuable, so precious... So worthy and wasted all on Jesus. Do you see that's the issue? That is the real problem of their criticism. In devaluing the gift of the devotion to Christ, they're devaluing Christ himself. Oh sure, you can give something to Christ. We don't, we don't object against that. But everything... See, this is the real problem the world has. The world doesn't have a problem with religion in moderation. The world doesn't mind that, religion in moderation. The world doesn't mind if you give a little to Christ and to follow him now and then. But to give your entire life to him, to devote your entire life to him, to put all your eggs into this one basket, to think he is worthy of all of your love, all of your money, all of your devotion, and all of your attention, that's a bit unbalanced. That's unhealthy. And to be honest, it's a bit irritating. But the irony is that the people don't mind if you give everything to money, if you give everything to power or position or pleasure. They don't mind that because that's what they want as well. That's what the world wants. But to give yourself completely and totally for the unseen Christ, that's a bit too radical. But beloved, this is ordinary Christianity. Jesus said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself, 
pick up his cross and follow me. In Luke 14, Jesus adds another of the costs of discipleship in 25. Luke 14, 25, he says, And a great crowd accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my disciple. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't mean we should literally hate our fathers and hate, literally hate our mothers and literally hate our wives. For he, Ephesians 5 says, husbands, love your wives <laughs> and love your neighbor as yourself. But you see what Jesus' point here is that in comparison, if you would compare your love for Christ in comparison to your love for everything else, you must almost look like hatred. You must almost look like you don't care. Of course you do care, but in comparison, that's the point. That is a total devotion of everything you have and everyone you love. Being lower than him, keeps putting it underneath him, asking, holding all these things you love with a loose hand for God to take it away at any moment. Like Job, to be willing and ready to say, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's why the story is in the middle. This is the model for discipleship. This is how discipleship looks like for Mark. It shows what true devotion looks like. So beloved, you can put it down as a rule. If you're going to start living like this, if you're going to start devoting yourself like this, like this woman, the world is, you are going to be ridiculed. You are going to be mocked. You're going to be thought of as crazy if you live like this for Christ. If you use your money, your possessions, and your dreams all for Christ, even being willing to lose it all, then you are crazy in the eyes of the world. But take heart, beloved. This is what we should expect. This is what has happened for over 2,000 years. And this life is short. People will mock and ridicule because of one simple reason, which even the disciples at this stage didn't see with the eyes of faith. They mocked her because they simply did not see the infinite worth, the infinite value, the infinite treasure of who Jesus is. Nothing is more precious. Nothing is more worthy. Nothing is more valuable. Nothing is more joy-giving or inspiring than Christ, the creator of the universe. I really think Matthew 13 verse 44 is a good parable of the Christian conversion as well. Matthew 13 44, it's a one verse parable. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, notice that word, joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Remember Paul himself, when he realized Christ and saw Christ, he, he looked at his life, he looked at his life's accomplishments, and this is what he said in Philippians 3, he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I suffered. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Greek, skubalon. We're going to talk about that word now. In order that I may gain Christ. That word rubbish, skubalon, is poop. It's rubbish. It's garbage. So take the best of what this world can offer you in comparison to Christ and it will be a massive nappy in comparison to the vacation at the sea that you can have. It's like that illustration of C.S. Lewis. It says, a child playing in the mud 
And God offers him a vacation at the sea, but he says no because he can't imagine how that would be like. And here's the irony, beloved, just to, I don't know, balance. Um, Gerrit and I spoke about this last, last week about balancing, but I, I do think this is an important balance to make. The irony is that when Christ is your highest treasure, your highest joy, then only can you really love other people. Then only can you enjoy the world. Then only are you free and able to enjoy everything else. So the irony is this is not a trade-off where you say only enjoy God and you enjoy nothing else. But this is if you really want to enjoy everything else, you must enjoy Christ above all. For then you will really enjoy everything else. So the more we love Christ, for example, the more we will love our wives. The more we will love our husbands. The more we will love our jobs, or, or do our jobs at least, with, with submission to God. The, the more we love Christ, the more we will do our studies with excellence and work hard. For we will start to see Christ in everything and everywhere around us. It's like that hymn that says, um, Turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Well, the reality is, turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of this world, this world will grow strangely brighter in the light of his glory and grace. So we normally say we should avoid extremes, but this is an extreme you cannot go too far. This is an extreme where you cannot be too extreme. You simply cannot love him too much. You cannot give too much. This is an extreme that God expects from you to give all of it to Christ. So our text closes. Our text closes with Christ's vindication. Now, now Christ vindicates this woman and he, people will mock, but Christ defends her and he will do that for us as well. First, he stands like a shield around her. Look at verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. So Jesus asks a simple question, why do you trouble her? People who are upset with true and wholehearted Christians have no reason to be upset with true and wholehearted Christians. Normally that's just a revealing of their hearts as well. There's absolutely no good reason in the world to persecute Christians because they are Christians. But Jesus now also shows them that the disciples had broken logic. That they, wasn't, they weren't thinking correctly. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. So Jesus here is not saying we should not do good to the poor. He actually commends that to do that. He says whenever you want to, you can do that. So he commends it. But the point here is the one of priority. He says the poor will always be there. You can always do good to them whenever you want, but not me. Jesus will not always be there. And this reminds us that the disciples were not listening. Jesus has been telling them, I am going to die. I am leaving. So to put it in perspective, if you knew that today was the last day you had with your wife, your husband, your children, your family or your friend, would you, would you not prioritize time with them above other secondary matters? And this is exactly what Jesus says. That's what they should have been thinking. They should have said, we have only a limited time with him. We should, we should focus on him. We should think about him. 
So even while sounding good, the disciples are not thinking the thoughts of God. They're thinking the thoughts of man, which is a sign of being influenced by Satan, remember, in Mark 8. Therefore, Jesus will help them to think the thoughts of God again. Yet again, look at verses 8 and 9. The, the, the last verses here. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, when, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So Christ honors her and says, wherever this gospel will be told, she will be remembered for it's forever written in the inspired words of God. Forever we will remember this act, that what she has done. 2,000 years later, and we, we're thinking, and we are thinking about this woman and how she gave everything to Christ. And notice Jesus says she did what she could. Notice that in verse 8. She has done what she could. That is what Jesus says. She gave what she could. So whether it's the two copper coins of Mark 12 of the poor widow, or whether it's the, the, the very expensive, the nard, pure nard, giving that to Jesus, it doesn't matter. Christ, God doesn't look at the amount of our giving, but our hearts, what we are able to do, what we are able to give. That's the point there. But let me ask you this. When would you expect someone to be anointed for burial? Normally, in normal life, right? It, isn't it only after they've died that you anoint people for burial? You don't anoint a living person for burial. Now here I think Mary's acts, well, Mary's act of anointing Jesus was even more significant than even she realized. She gave what she could to the one who loved her first. So in response to his love, she did this beautiful act of devotion to her Lord. Although not an official anointing, this was to show that Jesus is king. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one of God. But here's the irony. This king is anointed for burial. You know, normally you anoint a king and you say what? Let the king live forever. This king is anointed to die. To be buried. Because this is why he came. This is why he came. He came to save sinners from their sins, of which I am the foremost. So listen to me. Consider this great love of this king. The king laid down his life for you. Consider what, that he loved you first and gave all for you. He emptied himself of his divine majesty in heaven. Became a man, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Your sins may be many, but his mercies, his mercy is more. Your sins may be great, but his grace is greater. Your sins might be frequent, but in Christ your sins are washed away. So if you give your best, your all to Christ, whether it's a year's worth of salary or the two small copper coins, it can never compare with what Christ has given to you. He is the great giver for us. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. Charles Spurgeon wrote these words. He says, I feel that if I could live a thousand lives, I would like to live them all for Christ. And I should even then feel that they were all too little a return for his great love for me. If I could live a thousand lives, I would live them all for him. And even then I would feel it would be too little a return. For his great love to me. So beloved, see that. See the emptiness of the pleasures of sin. Turn away from your idols. Turn away from mammon. 
the God of money, which cannot give you what you want. It cannot satisfy your heart. It cannot give you lasting hope, lasting security. Set your hope on the eternal God who promises eternal life, both spiritually and physically, to all who believe in His Son. So will you come? Will you believe in Him? Will you see this treasure, cover it up, and go sell everything you have and buy that field that you might have Him, the treasure above all treasures, the joy of all joys? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this text that shows us what true discipleship looks like and that the key is to see Jesus, to see Him as the infinite treasure of all treasures, the bread of life that satisfies our souls, the the good shepherd that has laid down His life for us, the King of kings who who was hanged on a tree for me and for your people. Father, thank you for being the great giver, the great giver for us. So Lord, I pray that we will count the cost. Help us not to be fooled or not to be misled in our loving you and serving you, that to follow you would be hard. We will receive a lot of ridicule and mocking and persecution. But yet it is all worth it, for we have you. Lord, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. May that be our prayer. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.